my friends, those who don't know how to talk about death are those who usually struggle to articulate the meaning of life. Last weekend, I heard the story of Hadad. Hadad lives in Holland, but five years ago, his home was Syria. So he and his newly pregnant wife and a kindergarten age child at that time lived well as Christians in Syria. He had his MBA, he was an engineer, she was an architect. But then the Syrian war happened. They eventually barely made their way to the Netherlands. Now he works for the Reformed Church and she as a secretary for an architecture firm. Unlike here, the government there provided housing and stability right from the start. And it sounds like a perfectly peaceable life in an amazing country that is taking care of its citizens. But while Haddad has a new home, he is still deeply grieving. While he's grateful for his life, his life has lost so many of the essentials of what it means to be alive, to be human, what it meant to be Haddad. For Haddad, life before was life lived in community. Now, communal definitions of the self are not uncommon, but it's fairly uncommon to hear them from the lips of people who live in the West, that catch-all term for those of us in the U.S. and Europe, our culture being defined much by individualism and personal rights, which has its strengths and historical importances, right? For those who live in communal societies, they might find less hope in phrases like, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, than those of the famous utterance of perhaps Desmond Tutu, who said, I am because we are, and because we are, therefore, I am. In communal societies, you can hear phrases to remind a warefaring child like, quote, a child does not belong to one person. A phrase, according to one person, can be used as communal punishments are being enforced like spankings by aunts, neighbors, and adopted family friends. But none of these phrases seem to quite encompass the entirety of the human cycle, quite like this one that I learned last week. Quote, you did not birth yourself, and you will not bury yourself. You did not birth yourself, and you will not bury yourself. These aphorisms remind us that we belong not just to ourselves, of course, but to one another, that metaphorical body of Christ that Paul so eloquently painted in his epistles. But we forget that this metaphor arised from a communal culture, that Paul lived in a communal culture in which meaning making, and therefore the meaning of life and death, belong to the community from which you came. That phrase, you did not birth yourself, you'll not bury yourself, that's a reminder that each of us exists within this framework of human relationship from well before our birth until the last utterance of our long dead name by our ancestors sometime after us. But in communal cultures, one doesn't simply exist in the web of social networks. You are defined by it. One of the guest lecturers in our class, a professor from Nigeria told us, for example, that's common for the Che tribe people in Nigeria to know 300 years worth of family lineage. 300 years 
Most Americans, by some estimates, know at best three. Three generations, that is. So imagine living in a culture like this, where your birth and all the days of your childhood, your major life milestones, the life milestones you celebrated with everyone else in your neighborhood, your wedding, your culture, your language, your meals, your songs were all shared by the same small community living around you that helped to make you, you. The Israelites were a culture like this. And then their homeland was ripped away from them by the Babylonians. Now, it's hard for us in the West to understand the incredible pain of the exile of the Jews to Babylon. Because in the stories we've got in the Hebrew scriptures, like Esther and Daniel, the people all seem autonomous. But to be ripped from home meant something entirely different than what it means to people in the West. It meant to be ripped not just from home, but from everything that defines who you are in the ancient world. In our reading today, the psalmist laments, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and there we wept when we remembered Zion. Now notice that they don't lament individuals, but they're lamenting a place, because a place therein lies people. But one of the most meaningful activities of human bonding, even before language, according to some evolutionary biologists, is the act of singing. But the exile means that that can't occur, that it's lost, it's lost its meaning. The psalm continues, on the willows there by this river in Babylon, we hung up our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How could we sing the Lord's song when we are not in our own land? That land's funny to us today because we're so used to flying, to going to other places, to celebrating with friends and family who live across the country and the world, who have moved for usually their respective careers. But back then, exile meant community destruction, which equaled identity destruction. How can I sing when my beloved uncle was exiled to another part of Babylon? He always took the tenor part. How can I sing when I would usually dance with my cousin Elizabeth and she flew to Egypt? How can I sing when my parents were killed during the Babylonian invasion? How can I sing when I used to be an Israelite, a member of the house of Judah, and now that house and its defining sanctuary, the Temple of Solomon, or crumbled. If everyone who gave me identity is gone, if I've lived among these Babylonians now for years, my children were born here. My children don't speak our language very well. They haven't grown up singing our songs at our neighborhood weddings. They don't know what it means to be a Jew in the tribe of Judah. My children cannot recite those songs, but instead recite the songs of empire, and they share the values of empire. How can I sing? Hadad lamented similar sentiments as he sat via Zoom with us in his very sufficient Dutch apartment with his children asleep. Sure, his kids, his kids have now spent most of their lives in Holland. 
They know Dutch better than Arabic. Their Arabic is so bad that they have trouble communicating with their own grandparents on the phone. The kids don't know the songs of their homeland. They've never experienced a wedding because they don't have many Dutch friends in that age group. And so Haddad lamented that we are no longer refugees. This is where we live. And this is my children's land. It's a land where my children are now telling me, be quiet, dad. You don't know how it is here. And so Haddad weeps as he hears the mocking voice of the empire and the scolding of his own children. My class on ethnic variations and death and dying revealed to me the reality that those peoples and those cultures who have found ways to talk about death openly and abundantly, people have found ways to grieve that sort of loss. Those are the cultures who seem to most be able to celebrate living. The Bhutanese people have a saying that happy people are those that contemplate their impending death five times a day. Happy people contemplate their impending death five times a day. Now, we'll talk more next week about how you as an individual can, leave, can live a meaningful life with individual Christ-centered practices. But the bigger and larger takeaway today for you should be this, that we live in the body of Christ, that we were birthed by the power of Christ, that we will die in the body of Christ, and that therefore we should remember that so that we can more fully become the body of Christ and to express those values here and now. In our psalm today, the writer is so angry about being ripped from their home, every connection that they have, every ounce of meaning they possessed. And so they invited God to take, and they requested of God to take, the babies of their enemy Babylon to bash them against the rocks. Now, it's obviously not something we can imagine God taking literally, but I want to imagine that God takes seriously the feelings of the people who wrote that psalm. That this psalm remained in the canon of holy writ because it so viscerally describes the anger, the betrayal, and then the meaninglessness of life that comes when your home is ripped away from you in a communal culture. Because meaning is built together. That's really, at the end of the day, why we do church, right? We're trying to find meaning in this crazy, complex world, and so when we can't figure it out on our own, we come together with the great cloud of witnesses before us, those continued bonds with those who have entered the resurrection. Those of us who are still in the midst of swimming in the rivers of our baptism. And we search for truth and what it means to live a good life in the flow of God. That is why we do church, my friends. It's important to name that coming out of a year we had the question, why was this thing important at all? 
one of my takeaways from this word of the Lord, this psalm, and then from this class, is that we in the West have so atomized, so individualized our experience of life that we have made death taboo. And therefore, there are far too many people grieving by themselves, grieving the loss of so many things in this season, when God has given us the gift of community to help us to create new meaning in the face of meaningless death and destruction. Emmanuel from that Che tribe in Nigeria described their process of grieving a loved one and just made me yearn for a more communal culture. Emmanuel said that there, when a loved one dies, it begins a seven-day process whereby 150 or so of your closest friends, family, and neighbors and relatives come into your home. For seven days, everyone is cooking and cleaning and negotiating the safe landing of any vulnerable members of the left-behind family. For seven days, it is nothing but non-stop community, just showing up, crying with you, laughing with you, cooking with you, grieving with you. And after that time, the community makes sure that whatever the new arrangement is, that you, the beloved deceased family members, that you are taken care of, that you have the resources you need for thriving. They check on you daily. They peek in your garden to make sure your food is growing well. This professor even described a time when his best friend's wife had died. And so for 30 days, he came to his friend's house every day. Some nights he slept in the same bed with his best friend. Sometimes in the middle of the night, his friend would spontaneously start crying. So he'd cry too. They'd talk and they'd fall back asleep, holding hands so his friend knew that he was never alone. Now we definitely live in a different culture and it has its own strengths. But communal forms of grieving are often few and far between. For honest, most of the funerals that Pastor Molly and I officiate are done with very, very small family units at the, fan, the funeral homes. No music, little fanfare. Often the request we get from the family is for, quote, something small, not a big deal. I don't want to downplay any way that any person handles grief. For many, this is exactly what they want, and this is helpful. But I also can't help hearing those words of Emmanuel from Nigeria. And he begged us in class. He said, if I die in the U.S., please get me home as soon as possible. Because if people aren't going to cry and celebrate my life in community and the community celebrating my resurrection life in tears and songs, what is the point? Get me out of here. And these concerns aren't just esoteric. There's some research from the sociologist Holly Priggerson, the co-director of the Cornell Center for Research on End-of-Life Care in New York. It's shown that families of those who die in an intensive care unit, they are seven times more likely to develop PTSD than those whose loved one dies with in-home hospice. Communal grieving matters because we are the body of Christ. And when we are broken, we need a chance to heal. The good news of the gospel, my friends, is that sometimes communal grieving does happen in the United States. 
I went searching on Facebook asking you all when you had experienced death and dying and grief and loss in a communal way. Pastor friend named Devin shared that she stood at the bedside of someone dying while she was surrounded by their family and they held that space for grief and joy and allowed them permission to be in the moment and to welcome the transition into God's arms for their loved one. Another pastor friend, Roberta, shared how meaningful it was to hear those Presbyterian beloved bagpipes at a memorial service for a city of Toledo police officer. She said the bagpipes were instrumental in voicing our collective grief. She also talked about the service she saw for an ROTC candidate at University of Texas. She said the sight of the empty boots, the helmet, the weapon, the 21 gun salute, the presentation of the flag to the widow, the young children, that it was impossible not to feel chill, chills of gratitude as the battalion grieved his loss. Our own Kelsey Brown Corcoran shared that when I stood vigil over Justice Ginsburg's casket while she laid in repose at the Supreme Court, that her grief was uniquely personal, but also in communion with the thousands of people coming through the public viewing line and millions more watching on television. Connie Ryan Roby shared a, a summer when she was 14 years old, she was at a sleepaway camp in Vermont. They had a good friend who had to leave early to take vacation with her family and Connie was in the car with her to go to a different appointment. This friend got on a plane to Boston, the plane crashed. It was devastating. The whole camp had a few hundred girls and counselors. And they all had activities they did together. They were talking, they were swimming, they weren't sure what else to do because there was deep grief all around. The girl's name had been painted on the bed where she'd been the year before. It was very emotional and difficult. And another pastor friend in Arlington, Allie, shared that in high school, the head coach of their crew team was killed and they remember how hard it was. They were processing with one of their crew friends over instant messenger, an AOL, that the whole crew team was being called out of class to a special gathering at school the next day. Do you remember standing in line for a long time at the funeral to pay their respects? She didn't even know the coach personally very well. He was the head coach, sort of a larger than life figure, not the coach of any boat she'd rode on. She says, for me and a lot of others, I think it was the shock of this horrible thing that had happened. And the fact that it was clearly a huge deal for this team we were a part of. And there was grief in that. Friends, grief is not just about what happens to me. It's about what happens to us. Friends in Christ, we're looking down the road to a time when we'll no longer be grieving the loss of our sanctuary as we will be gathered again together soon. The pandemic's most strict limitations in our community have been lifted, yes, but we have much grief work to do together. The psalmist lamented, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remembering our spiritual home and how it's changed as part of the grieving process. 
as is remembering how our own homes, our own communities have changed. Our spiritual work has to begin in earnest. We cannot wait until we walk into buildings. Much has been lost. Loved ones, lifestyles, jobs, incomes, expectations, and hopes. So let's not do this alone. Let's learn from the example of those who have been torn from their homes, those for whom homes are more than just homes, that communities are people and culture and celebration and communal grieving and communal meaning making. So let us learn from the testimony of the great saints whose stories we heard today. Let's be reminded that to truly live, we have to together confront that which is lost. For as St. Francis of Assisi reminds us, for it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Thanks be to God for this body of Christ. And amen.